Today, in an atypical episode of Killing Missing Hidden, we explore the death of Clay Daniels, a young man in Texas who is found dead in a single car accident that caused the car and everything inside to burn away. However, certain facts didn't add up, and police soon began to think that this was no accident. Was his wife, Molly, behind the tragic crash? Or could it have been the victim of a recent crime Clay had been sentenced for? In this episode, we explore what happened to Clay Daniels. Welcome, welcome, welcome into yet another exciting, nail-biting, tongue-twisting episode of Killing, Missing, Hidden. This is your bold buddy Brad. This week, this week's going to be a little different than normal. Uh, We've suffered through some hurricanes and other things have been occurring that have hampered my ability to properly research a case. So, this episode is going to be a little loosey-goosey, probably not as well-researched as we're used to, but I think we'll make up for it with this crazy, stupid case that's got lots of eye-rolling fun in it. The Killing Moon podcast actually suggested this one for us, so props to them. Go check them out. So, as I mentioned, we're going to discuss the death of Clay Daniels and the role his wife, Molly, played in the case. As you know, I always post my show notes online, but I'm going to note that I'm relying primarily on the episode of Forensic Files that covered this case because it's just too darn good in a cheesy way. And let's treat this as an homage to one of my favorite podcasts, It's Always the Husband. They do this every week, and they're fantastic at it. So if you want a poor man's version of what to experience, listen on. And then go listen to the real thing so you can see what a disappointment this one really is. And you should be listening to It's Always the Husband anyway because they're pretty fantastic week in, week out. So in our episode, cleverly and forebodingly entitled by Forensic Files, Grave Danger, we start off at the scene of a car on fire on the side of the road, somewhere down a steep embankment in Texas on June 18th, 2004. Firefighters are called to the scene when a passing motorist sees this flaming pile of car, but they get there too late to do any good. The car was so badly burned, the tires had melted and formed a hybrid type of organism with the rocks on the ground. And the driver, the driver was burned beyond recognition. Police learned the vehicle was registered to Molly and Clay Daniels. Molly was home when the police came by to share the devastating news. Family could only identify the body as being Clay's because of the little trinkets found inside. Uh, Portions of his shoes had survived the fire. Uh, His silver necklace that he always wore was in the vehicle. A Harley-Davidson pin that he wore on his favorite hat was found. When it was all said and done, there was only 14 pounds of body mass remaining, according to the insurance adjuster. 
Now, they, why they picked him to share this information with us, I don't really know. I, I guess they interviewed the guy, and they felt like, well, we, we got to get him in here somewhere. Did he say anything useful? And so he gets to tell us about the 14 pounds of body mass. And, and if you watch the episode, you can see his computer in the background, and the wallpaper on his computer is that of the sun. Like, not not his sun, but the giant ball of gas at the center of our solar system. That's what excites him, or that's what he wants to look at every day. I, I just, he struck me as a dude that wouldn't be a great lunch date. Now, apparently the story takes part in a place in Texas where there are no beautiful people born and raised. Um, I don't want to disparage any of the good guys in this case, so I'll just say that many members of the investigative team have lots of, um, uh, let's say, character in their face um, and in their body shape. You know, think low-rent Batman villains. No, no, you're not being creative enough, I promise. The insurance guy is the only normal-looking guy, but he also seems like the sort that would get overstimulated by an episode of the Antique Road Show on PBS. But we will pick on the deceased here, and I'm not being as tacky as that may sound if you will bear with my fine story-crafting a bit. Now, Clay was 24 years old, an unemployed auto mechanic, and he wasn't the most popular dude in town. Molly's mother, who was interviewed for his program, the first statement she makes about Clay on national TV is, quote, absolutely he's a loser. His memorial slash funeral was a beautiful train wreck, too. During the eulogy, his best friend called him an asshole instead of a coffin and I swear to you I'm not creative enough to make this up on my own we are presented with a scene that centers around a red dirt bike that is covered lovingly with a draped confederate flag I'm letting that sit in for a minute that's what was at his funeral his memorial okay um, also, the dude was a sex offender. He had recently been sentenced for sexually abusing his seven-year-old cousin. So why wasn't he in jail, you ask? Which is a very good and astute question. He was actually due to report to jail the Monday following this tragic accident. Thus making the timing here a little interesting. So the police start their investigation. And they have to start with the sexual assault victim's father because he had been complaining to police and prosecutors that Clay didn't get enough jail time and he would take care of the problem on his own. And then we never mention the victim's father again. So we're left to presume that he was not the one to kill Clay. Now, in fairness, this dude's sentence was only... 30 days. Actually, that's not accurate. When I looked into it, it's only 10 years probation. And if he violated the terms of his probation, he would go to jail for 20 years. He was on his way to serve a 30-year sentence for violating probation in a previous case. That 
is shocking to me to have an adult sexually abuse a seven-year-old and only get probation, especially when we're talking about such a red state as Texas. As y'all know, if you've been listening to the podcast, I did lots of criminal defense work, and I did it in Alabama, which arguably is as red as Texas. And I can guarantee you that if you do that in Alabama, by law, the minimum sentence you can get is two years. But in reality, a prosecutor is not going to agree to a deal that gets you less than seven or ten years in jail. And if you go to trial and you think the judge is going to be more lenient, you're in for a surprise. You'd have to hang on to your butts because you're going to jail for 15 or 20 years. These judges got to say that they're tough on crime where they're out on the campaign trail. So this this sentence that Clay got sounds very un-Texas-like in my mind. Now, after Clay's death, the community really reached out to support Molly. They sent her money. They brought her groceries. They even offered babysitting services. They had two young children, and she had support them off of a, I believe she was a receptionist salary. Um, and they just, you know, they really embraced this young widow until she got Clay's life insurance policy of $100,000 to pay out. And to the, dis- the absolute distaste of many members of the community, Molly found a new boyfriend about 30 days after Clay died. So, oddly, you can kind of mark that the gifts she started receiving dried up about when she met her new love. Her mother, whose identity was hidden during the show, she's in the shadows and you never see her face and all that, Um, she's, in case you couldn't tell from that first quote, she's just absolutely savage in this episode. But on this point, she just, she couldn't believe Molly was taking all these handouts when she knew she was about to get this life insurance payout. And she was appalled that Molly started dating again so soon. It seems like Mama and Molly didn't see eye to eye about much in life, as you can no doubt tell. So Molly starts living the high life, while the police notice some oddities about the crash that took Clay's life. They end up bringing in a special arson investigator. They also attempt to determine via, we're going to get sciencey here, mitochondrial DNA pulled from the bone marrow in the hip bone from the remains, whether it was Clay who was in the vehicle. And this sort of DNA test is not a quickie. Uh, It takes a while, somewhere like six months. Accent scene investigators had several questions because they noted there were no skid marks leading off the embankment. Also, it looked like the car went off the embankment at a very slow rate of speed because it left a path going all the way down the hill. It knocked over small trees, it displaced rocks, and you would think on a road where the speed limit's 60 miles per hour... You know, a dirt bike-loving Confederate flag-waving SOB like Clay would never drive below the speed limit. Never. I mean, that's just not how sex offenders like him roll, baby. So they, they have their questions. The arson investigator noted that, well, the trash, I mean, the gas can was not 
to all right let's try this in english the arson investigator noted that the gas tank on the car wasn't punctured and all the other traditional sources of ignition in the car were intact she found it odd that there wasn't a pooling of body fluids in or under the driver's seat or anywhere else she decided to gather up some of the debris and took it back to the lab where it was analyzed and discovered that the fire was started through charcoal lighter fluid. Hmm. Perhaps whoever wanted to kill Clay thought it should look like an accident. Now for something even more bizarre. About the time the arson investigator reached her conclusion that the fire was intentionally set, Molly's sister reported a odd encounter while out, while out visiting Molly. Um, and odd doesn't really do justice here. So the sister went to the master bath to grab a Q-tip. I don't know what for. This question has haunted me since I watched this episode. But nevertheless, she grabs this all-important, life-changing Q-tip. As she's walking back to the living room, she notices that Molly's closet door is open there in the master bedroom. And there's a man wearing nothing but boxers asleep at the bottom of the closet. Uh-huh. Mostly naked man asleep in the closet. Who had that twist on their bingo card this week? So Sis runs and grabs Molly. Molly says you're crazy and then reluctantly agrees to go check it out. When they return to the bedroom, our sleeping foot fetish man is not there. I guess this fetish fairy giveth and the fetish fairy taketh away. Or maybe he was just wanting a Q-tip for himself and the sister got the last one. Molly's mom says at this point, quote, Things started to get weird after that. And police describe the event as suspicious. No child. No, 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 no. We flew over weird and suspicious land hours ago. We have now landed in, is this a dream because nothing makes a lick of sense island now. So at this point, police kind of start thinking that Molly might have been involved in Clay's death, which kind of makes sense. I mean, even in a village of goblins, being married to the sex offender goblin probably isn't great for your reputation. And if you can get paid 100 k uh, for knocking them off and then just have naked men's appear in your bedroom at random times, the temptation may be a little too much. So at this point in the story, we've had about five months elapse from the time Clay died. And I have to note here that everybody refers to Clay as Clayton this episode. And that's wrong. He's a Clay. He is something you would dig out of the ground. Clayton is a tax preparer or bookstore manager. Clay, no doubt, knows three ways to turn a pear into a bong. And that would be his greatest achievement in life. All right, so back to the story. Five minutes pass, which means we get some DNA results back. And it turns out Clay was not the baby's daddy. Maury, Maury, Maury. Wait, wait, wrong DNA test. All right, so here, Lord Clayton Daniels Esquire the Fourth is not the body in the car. The police immediately and collectively went, say what? The police that were not dumbfounded by this result decided to do some surveillance of Molly. 
They watched her for days and saw that there was nothing unusual until she went to lunch with her new boyfriend, Jake Gregg. Molly and Jake ate lunch at a nearby Taco Bell. The police, this is the most Texas-styled moment to me in the episode. The police are tired of screwing around, and so they just decide to go eat lunch at Taco Bell, too. The two officers walk inside and walk right up to their table, and they notice something odd. This Jake Gregg fellow looked like Clay Daniels' twin, except for the hair. The hair was a slightly different color. Now, he produced a Texas ID card indicating that he was Jake Gregg, but as one of the officers said, if he could have crawled into that burrito, he probably would have. Regardless of the ID, the officers placed Jake under arrest. While he was questioned, Jake admitted he was really Clay Daniels. Dun, dun, dun! Alright, so skipping over some of the boring parts. The deal was that Clay decided to fake his own death to avoid going to jail and to avoid having to register as a sex offender because obviously that would screw up his great career and because he knew he'd get the $100,000 life insurance policy. He was then going to take his little potato-shaped sweetheart down to Mexico where he was going to have some dental work done as well as some plastic surgery. All right, so so I hope y'all will indulge me here. I need a timeout because this last part of the plan may have been Clay's best idea. This dude looked devastating. Like, have you ever seen the teeth on an alpaca? If you haven't, you need to Google it, okay? And I'm going to put a picture on our Instagram. They're just horrific. And then imagine having the teeth of an alpaca, but you only get to keep 40% of them. That would be Clay's mouth. His looks aren't really all that terrible outside of that. If you like the whole hillbilly rednecks who wear camo to a wedding and can't quite grow a normal beard, probably because of all the inbreeding. And despite him having such a, um, let's say, unique look about himself, his only disguise was to dye his hair from brown to black. This man's genius truly knew no bounds. Oh, and, and let's not overlook his new identity, Jake Gregg. How, what was the conversation he had with himself to land on this name? Well, uh... I, uh, I like that name Jake. I guess I could call myself Jake. I reckon I'm going to need a last name too, ain't I? Uh, well, uh, well, I like the name Greg. Knew a good guy named Greg. I guess I can be Greg Jake. Yeah, yeah, Greg, Greg Jake. No, no, that, something about that just don't flow. How about Jake Greg? That sounds a little bit better, yeah. A little more sophisticated, yeah. Jake Gregg. Well, I sure hope I can remember all that. All right, so back to Molly. So she, I mean, think about this. She has been shacking up with her husband, pretending it was her boyfriend, and they have kids. Molly and Clay slash Jeff have been telling the kids that no... 
this isn't your daddy, it's your mommy's new boyfriend, Jake. And these kids were like five and two, I think, four and one, somewhere around there. I mean, I just, I, I, and I bet the four-year-old was never fooled by this. He just got tired of arguing with his stupid parents. Okay, now let's let's get back to that interview of slash interrogation of Clay. So he admits that he was staying in the house, and he was the person that Molly's sister saw in the bedroom closet. He claimed he was sleeping, but when Molly was alerted to the intruder, she started talking loudly, and it woke him up, giving him just enough time to roll under the bed. Let me stop here again. I kind of need to catch my breath because the stupidity is starting to choke me a little bit. What is wrong with these people? (laughs) Why is Clay in the house when Molly's sister comes to visit? And why is he comfortable enough with the situation to take a nap in their closet with the freaking door open? And for that matter, why did Molly let her sister go into the master bath anyway? And what the heck was up with that Q-tip? Ugh. Just too many unanswered questions. Okay, I'm going to compose myself. we got to finish strong here. Despite appearing to be nothing more than a slack-jawed yokel, Clay actually is smart enough to refuse to discuss the body in the vehicle. Which is kind of an important point we haven't touched on. If that wasn't Clay in the vehicle... That means they took someone else and burned them beyond recognition, which is horrifying. Molly's mom touches on this and immediately suggests that they murdered a hobo and threw him in the car. And I'm not lying. I found it hilarious, but she's, she seriously was like, oh, they probably killed somebody who was homeless and threw him in there. Uh, I mean, I, I, I would marry that woman if I knew in my heart that that Texas rose had not already been plucked. But shockingly and sadly, Clay does eventually screw up and he decides to share with his cellmate his brilliant plan regarding the body. He dug up somebody's corpse from a graveyard and used that as his stand-in. And guess which cemetery he picked? The closest one to the scene of the accident, a.k.a. the very first cemetery police looked. And guess which grave he dug up? The one nearest the entrance, a.k.a. the first place police looked. Now, to Clay's credit, the body he dug up was of an elderly woman who was said not to have many friends or living relatives, and he picked her intentionally because of that. So the hamster's running a little bit inside there, spinning the wheel. He also picked a body that was in kind of the pauper's part of the graveyard. Now, where Clay fell a little short is he dug up a grave and made no effort to hide the evidence that he dug up a grave. The headstone was knocked over. The flowers were strewn all over the place. The the dirt wasn't even leveled off. I mean, it looked like It looked like somebody had dug up the daggum grave. So at this point, the police turned back to Molly because she's been living with Clay and pretending like it's not him. And now they've learned that 
they've got Clay dead to rights on this insurance fraud and on desecrating the corpse. What can they get on Molly? Well, now she claims that Clay just walked back into her life after about 30 days, and she kept sticking to the story. This is what she told her attorney. This is what her defense was based on. But police got a hold of her computer, and they found out that she had a keystroke virus that recorded everything she ever did on that computer. This was not one where police had to work too hard, as you can tell. So guess what this virus records specifically? Oh, you know, just typical girl stuff like how to burn a body beyond recognition and how to start a car fire, how to create a new identity, you know, innocent things like that. Well, this this was kind of the smoking gun of sorts that prosecutors loved. And they interviewed Molly's mom about this, and her response was, again, and I quote, what surprised me most was how stupid she was. (laughs) I love that woman. So police searched Molly's house, and they find two bottles of charcoal starter fluid that matched the starter fluid found in the vehicle. Ultimately, the police put together that both Clay and Molly went to the cemetery dug up this poor woman's body, drove with the corpse in their car or in their trunk all the way to the scene of the accident, got the corpse dressed up in Clay's clothes, put the corpse into the front seat, set the car on fire, pushed it down the embankment, made sure the fire kept going, then tossed in some of Clay's stuff to help, quote, his body be identified. They claim they came up with the idea by watching Law and & Order and CSI. When an investigator pointed out that the criminal usually gets caught in those shows, Molly found that observation hilarious. I'm so glad she was able to keep a good sense of humor during this fiasco of a crime she tried to pull off. So when it all came down, Molly got 20 years in prison for insurance fraud and hindering Clay's apprehension which I think was the maximum sentence she was facing. She claimed during her sentencing hearing that she wasn't motivated by greed, but she just wanted to keep her family together and keep her husband out of jail. Clay, he got 30 years for the insurance fraud and all that mess, and then he happened to get an additional 20 years for a sexual assault charge because they deemed this to be a violation of his probation. So I'm glad at least he ended up with a decent punishment on that, even though we had to go about it in a roundabout way. So, and I'm just still stuck on the the probation for assaulting a six-year-old girl. That, again, in my jurisdiction, that dog just won't hunt, but who knew Texas would act like such a weenie on sex offenses? Now, I found online, for what it's worth, a comment from a person who claimed to actually be the victim in that case. And she said a big reason for that deal was the fact that her parents didn't want her to go through the trauma and stress of a trial. And that this was the best deal prosecutors could work out when they were 
handicapped in that manner. Further, there was allegedly no direct evidence of the crime, which really isn't uncommon, but still, um, I, I don't, I don't get it. Um, you know, sadly, Molly and Clay's children have struggled with this. Um, the oldest child really has struggled. He, when he thought his daddy was dead, his grandparents reported to the news that he would like lay on the couch and look up at the ceiling and say things like, I love you, daddy. And, and there were other stories that I'm not, they're just too sad to share. Um, and you know, Molly did nothing to help him. Hopefully his new family, and I think he's living with Clay's parents, can help him deal with this horribleness. Uh, I just cannot imagine how messed up that poor child's going to be from what his parents did. And sadly, I must report that Molly was released on parole sometime after 2016, but I couldn't pin down an exact date. I even went through Texas's their Department of Corrections or whatever they call it to see if I could find it and it, there's just no information lifted, listed. Um, Clay will be eligible for parole for the first time in 2021. So, that's our story. Something a little less heavy than what we normally cover. If you want to watch the episode, and God, I hope you do, it's on Netflix. It's part of Collection 2 of Forensic Files. I think it's really supposed to be part of season six or seven, but they do it in collections and it got thrown on there. You can probably find it on YouTube too. Again, it's called Grave Danger. Um, like I said, I actually did a spot of additional research. So there's a few articles you can look at in our show notes if you want more info on this crazy case. But I think this essentially wraps up our tale of what is indisputably two criminal geniuses. Okay, so business time. First of all, I have an apology to one of our listeners, but I don't know who to whom. Last week's episode about Brianna Mitlin was actually a listener-suggested episode, but I kind of lost the name of who suggested it uh, because I'm a disaster of a host. If you were the one that suggested it and you want your podcast cred, hit me up with an email or a direct message on Instagram or Twitter. Um, you know, actually I owe an apology to all of you who tried to listen to Brianna's story when it first popped up and ended up listening to something else. Some total freaking idiot, me, uploaded the wrong audio and it took a few hours to sort that out. Again, I'm just a walking mess. All right, props to uh, Deb and Gabby for joining the ranks of the elite this week and joining our special Facebook user group. We love you, and we're happy you've made this blood oath. I also want to give thanks to a recent review. Argy, A-R-G-H-I-E, left us a wonderful review where he or she said, Give Brad, just Brad, a listen. His delivery is different, casual and friendly, like he's your friend and telling you a story. Thanks so much for that, RG. We really love kind words like that, and we'll highlight you on our Instagram feed. Continuing the love, 
I want to let you all know about a podcast known as the Xander and Stone podcast. They gave us a shout out last week on their episode, and it only seems right to do the same. They are brand new. I think by the time this episode publishes, they'll have three episodes out. But, you know, quality's quality, whether there's one episode or a hundred. Um, I think they do a good job covering paranormal type stuff. And if that's your jam, check them out. Xander and Stone podcast. See if they tickle your fancy. And I'm not done with business. We got a lot. As you know, I have said in the past that once we hit 25,000 listens, we'd have a special guest boy. Well, guess what? We hit it on September 17th. So now I have to make good on my promise. Dang it. So here's what we're going to do. The giveaway is going to take place during October, okay? And there will be not one, but three giveaways. Because three, as I was taught, is the magic number. Here's a rough, and I emphasize rough, overview of what's going to happen. But understand I can change these rules on a whim because it's my show and I like abusing what little power I get in life. So, three giveaways. That means there will be three prize boxes, we're going to call them. The winner of our first giveaway will get to pick which box he or she wants. Second giveaway winner gets to pick from the remaining two, and then the third gets whatever's left over. And I say that like it's going to be trash, but I think these will actually be decent little boxes. So one box is going to be kind of our literary box. It will be full of true crime and paranormal books. A very special thanks to At The Reading Alvina for suggesting many of these titles. She runs a book blog. It focuses on true crime and the like. Go find her. Follow her on Instagram. Again, it's at reading owl, like the bird, Vina, all in one word. Okay, so the second box is going to be our art box. And it will contain, among other things, an original commissioned piece of art from at Pencil Heart Art. You can find them on Instagram. And it is awesome looking it really blew me away how good this turned out uh, and frankly i kind of want to keep it for myself um you can go to her instagram and check out how talented this chick is again it's at pencil heart art she's awesome and i really feel blessed that she agreed to do the special commission for us and we'll try to throw in a few extra little bonuses into that box now, the last box, now, this last box is going to be the gambler's box because it is Mr. Eli's box. Yes, I'm allowing my eight-year-old joke master to build a box himself. And honestly, I have no clue what he's going to pick out. I'm not going to influence in any way other than I'm not going to spend $200 on a bobblehead. But... The boy has unique tastes, and this box certainly has the potential to be the most entertaining box of all. 
Now you remember how I've been saying that you want to join the Facebook group. You'll need to join the Facebook group. You'll will make you happy if you do it. This is why, because the first giveaway I'm opening up only to those people who are members of the group. So go on Facebook, find our group, and join it. And then you've got a chance to get first dibs on the boxes. Um, we'll have more details as we get closer to, but that's just a little something to get you excited. Okay, let's let's do the palate cleanser and call it a day, okay guys? So here's what Mr. Eli has for us this week. Why did the book join the police force? Because he wanted to go undercover. All right, well, that was a lot. I really didn't think this episode ended up being that long. Um, but I think it was worth it. I hope you do, too. Nothing clever as I sign off this week. Not that there ever is. Um, again, just to repeat some of those shout-outs. Check out It's Always the Husband podcast. It's really good, guys. I always laugh listening to it. Uh, and this is what I've done today is what they do every week, but they're seasoned veterans and they do such a better job. Um, Xander and Stone podcast, if you want a new one and you like paranormal stuff. Again, if you want to check out Great Art, it's at Pencil Heart Art on Instagram. And if you want an awesome true crime book blog to follow, Go to, let me get this right because I always want to mis, misspeak it. At the Reading Owl Vena. And I'm going to spell that. It's at the, you can know that, Reading, simple. Owl Vena is O W L V I N A. Okay. Um, like I said, nothing clever. Just keep being good to one another. As I tell my kids, it's just as easy to be nice as it is to be a jerk. So be nice. That's the message I'm leaving you with. Just be nice. Love you all. Appreciate you all. And thank you for helping us reach 25,000 listens. That's ridiculous. There's no, I mean, it makes me think there's something wrong with the general population that that many people would listen to this show. But I, I appreciate your emotional trauma and other disabilities that have led you here. Um, hopefully you can find more people who are just as odd and would get a kick out of this. All right. Okay. I said I would shut up and I am. Love you all. Brad out. Thank you for listening to Killing, Missing, Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com